This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, hiding between the loaves. I like to think of myself as reasonably well-informed. I read history books and bits and bobs of news from around the world. But I often end up feeling non-wiser for it. So I go to poems, to novels, to find what I've been missing. The human soul, that nightmare of nuances. That's how the Belarusian writer Svetlana Alexievich puts it. Alexievich is a Nobel Prize-winning genre-crossing historian, and the kind of history she's interested in is, quote, the everyday life of the soul, the things that the big picture of history usually omits or disdains, unquote. I recently sat down with two compatriots of hers, Belarusian writers who also like to dig around in the dustbin of history for what's been overlooked, Yulia Tsimafieva and Valjina Mort. They recently collaborated on a collection titled Motherfield, with poems that Yulia wrote and Valjina translated, as well as fragments from Yulia's protest diary against the stolen elections in 2020. You'll hear from Yulia in the second part, But first, Valjina. We started talking about history, actually. Because when Valjina was still in school, the Soviet Union collapsed. And with that, her history classes were never the same. You know, I do remember the um, lessons in the history of Belarus very vividly. They began in fifth grade. So I was uh, in my early teens and we were the one of the first generations of school children to be taught Belarusian history. The idea that we, uh, our country, had history that went beyond the Soviet Empire, that was big news. And uh, I remember the books that were so hastily printed and how they had no pictures, no maps, <laughs> um, and um, how they were written by scholars. Um, I, I don't think that in a language suitable for children, but it was our history. And um, I remember the whole wave of names that sounded foreign to us, yet they were actually... Uh, Belarusian names. They were the names of our historical figures that to us sounded utterly foreign. What is like a name that really rings in your ear? (laughs) Well, many, many. Rachnedei Rachvalod, for instance. You know, of course, nobody around me was named Rachneda and Rachvalod. We were all uh, Katyas and, um, you know, Mishas. (laughs) And um, I loved pronouncing those names. And I remember that I had a history teacher who had very, very beautiful soft lips, and she also spat a lot when she spoke. And I loved watching her mouth as she was pronouncing those names. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But then at home, I had my grandmother who told me stories of her life Every day, there were the stories of her childhood in the 30s, of her 
teenagehood during World War II in the 40s, and then of her being um, a young mother and an educated woman who became a single mother very fast uh, during the Soviet Union. Uh, so there was always that very private, very lyrical narrative that rang along those wonderful history books <laughs> in school and the propaganda that started later. Mm-hmm. But also during the time of Lukashenko's reign, a lot of historians and scholars have been working tirelessly on historical scholarship But it is very complicated. Our historical scholarship is relatively young, and um, a lot of it has been done under tremendous threat and uh, despite great limitations that are put forward by our government, our state. But um, the reason why Belarusian history is so complicated is because it consists of many competing narratives. Belarusian lands historically have been in the middle of great empires that moved their borders and competed for the borderland. So the complication of Belarusian history is that it's told often not by Belarusians, unfortunately. Our history is told by Poles, by Lithuanians, by Ukrainians, by Russians. There is a history of Belarusian Jews. There is a history of Belarusian Tatars. Um, And for too long, Belarusians themselves had very little space to speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah. But it is very complicated. Belarusian history is very complicated. And today it's very easy to start a big argument by just throwing in what to you seems like a fact <laughs> into, mm-hmm. <laughs> into the, the Belarusian Facebook. And immediately you will have a huge blowout argument. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we are overwhelmed by too much history. Um, uh, so constantly you have to ask yourself, who am I? But I, I have an answer to that as a poet. I'm Vagina Mort and, you know, I write from inside myself. I do not write from uh, some kind of outside history. Yes. It's so interesting because it's, you know, there's, of course, overlap between, you know, memory what comes from you and history, which comes from supposedly outside. And, you know, I think the Belarusian writer who most foreigners know is probably Svetlana Alexievich, mm-hmm. who really does that. I mean, she writes history, but through the memories of the people she interviews. And, you know, she won the Nobel Prize for literature. So I don't know if she's seen as a historian or as a novelist, but it doesn't matter. What she makes is is literature. I think. And so I'm wondering for you as a poet who is interested in history, what does a poem allow you to do that you could never in, say, an academic text or a journalistic article that has to do with history? Mm-hmm. I think that she's a poet. She uses the devices of a poet in her work. She's a stylist. 
she relies a lot on estrangement and repetition when she crafts her interviews. And I recognize them, these devices, as I read her. And uh, in fact, I assign some of her books to my poetry students to see how poetic devices are used uh, by this phenomenal stylist who works kind of between the genres with very difficult historical material. So, I mean, let me stay a little bit in this, um, maybe not in the shadow, but in the in Svetlana Alexievich's body warmth <laughs> and say that uh, I too am interested to what happens to, to a human heart. Um, how does a human experience history? Because I think that there is something very conclusive in the numbers and uh, lists of reasons, consequences in analysis. But I don't believe that there could be any conclusion to the past, to violent traumatic past. And uh, it's very important to, at least for me, to think about a singular human experience and how a human being like um, my grandmother, my mother, or I, how we experience historical events that we do not choose. Yeah. I'm wondering if we can read a poem from your collection, Music for the Dead and Resurrected. And it's quite a long one. So would you be okay with excerpting it? Yeah, absolutely. The poem is titled Baba Bronya. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you wanted to read the first three pages. Um, okay. Okay, let's do that. Baba Bronya. On Pravda Avenue, four women protect 60 square meters of our family Pravda. In the apartment building that stretches for two bus stops, I'm a test child exposed to the burning reactor of my grandmother's memory. In the first decade of my life, I receive a full dose of her, your, Pravda, truth, as a daily injection. When in the winter dark I complain about having to go to school, you bring up 1941. You have just finished fourth grade in a Minsk orphanage. The first day of war puts an end to your education. What would have become of me if not for war? It is impossible to imagine you as anything else but a Pravda teller of your life. As I eat my lunch, you talk with gusto about hunger. When I complain about my unfashionable clothes, you laugh remembering your wedding. You borrowed a white robe from a nurse to wear as your wedding dress. When I beg for privacy, you ask, Did I tell you about the day the Bolsheviks came to take the roof of our farmhouse? Or worse, Did I tell you about the house where my mother died right after sending my brothers and me to an orphanage? Did I tell you about how Uncle Kazik died? Did I tell you how the Soviets took my father twice? And since he did return after the first time, I didn't cry a bit when they took him the second time? Later, you did cry abundantly when Stalin died. 
You remember the names of all our dead relatives and all the distances between the burned-down villages. You remember childhood rhymes and the exact dates of non-consequential occurrences. A bee stung your great-uncle Leopold in the eye on July 11th. But you never remember that you have already told me these stories before. Have I told you about my life? You'd say at night from your bed. Three of us share one bedroom, my sister, you and I. My parents sleep on a sofa bed in the living room. I've never set foot inside our second bedroom. When I feel unwell, you talk about your leg that doesn't bend in the knee. A stick instead of a leg. Right before the war, you are scheduled for a kneecap surgery, but the bombings cancel all plans, and for five years, the knee rots. It is a miracle that in the end, the leg doesn't have to be amputated. In the first months after the war, waiting for the surgery, you sit in the garden of Aunt Victor's house when a soldier on his long way home stops by the fence. Beautiful, would you pick me a flower? He asks. All your stories feature this moment, whether it is a story of hunger, bombing, exile, sickness, or death. Somebody always stops by to tell you how pretty you are. Unable to walk by yourself, silently you keep to your seat. Before leaving, the man says in your most dramatic voice, Your eyes will haunt my dreams. I was ashamed to reveal that I was an invalid, you explain daily. For me, your stories, pravdas, replace real life. These stories keep me inside them like a circle of fire. As I grow older, you make sure I stay chained to a listening chair with an accordion. You help fasten a large red Weltmeister on my skinny shoulders like a stone sinker. I sit on the bottom of your stories with an accordion holding me down. I have a question about um, about detail. Because I think, you know, you write about your Baba, your grandmother. Um, you remember childhood rhymes and the exact dates of non-consequential occurrences. A beast on your great uncle Leopold in the eye on July 11th. And I thought it was so funny because, of course, that's how memory works. Mm-hmm. You know, we remember all kinds of nonsense without consequence. And I feel like a lot of history writing is about deciding what is important and what is not. You know, what mm-hmm. to include and what not. And memory, of course, is a lot less structured. Like, that. like it's not conscious. You know, you don't, you don't make a decision. And so I'm wondering when you write a poem that has a strong historical theme, how do you decide what is an important detail to include and what is not? Yeah, I think that nothing is unimportant for a poet. And um, in many ways, poetry makes insignificance significant. So... It's true that my grandmother told me about her father's conscription. Her father was a farmer who liked music and played instruments and sang. So he was conscripted and was killed very fast. Uh, He was not much of a soldier. 
But telling the story, my grandmother didn't know what he was fighting for, who conscripted him, and what was that military action happening. What bothered her is that when he was taken, she believed that he would be back, and so she did not put up a big scene, right? She did not cry and um, she did not uh, kind of manifested the separation anxiety <laughs> the way that um, she felt she should have and she could have if perhaps she knew that he would never come back. She was convinced that she, he was coming back and so she didn't cry. And that for her, uh, that fact of not crying mattered and that was something historical, personal to solve, not the fact of why was he conscripted, for what reason, for what motive, for what ideology and for whose agenda, in whose name did he die, not in the name of his children, not in the name of the plot of land that he was cultivated, not in the name of the songs that he was singing. And so for her, it was very personal. So I, yeah, to come back to what I said in the very beginning, answering this question, I think that nothing is insignificant. In fact, a poet is a little bit like a detective who comes to a scene after the historians have left. <laughs> So the historians have left the scene and this rogue detective poet comes and walks and should find whatever was left unobserved and unnoticed. So when you read a good detective story, right, the pleasure of reading a detective story, which I love, is that no detail is unimportant, because you know that every detail is a possible clue that will solve the murder mystery at the end. Yeah, all of them are strategically placed, these details. And I think that poetic thinking is such a thinking in which every little insignificant detail is, in fact, a sign. That is so beautiful. And I feel like it leads us into another poem of yours, Little Songs. Mm -hmm. um, it's so rich with images, like signs, for you to follow and for you to connect. And, and so I'm wondering if you can read that poem and then we can talk about it a little bit. Yes. Little songs. Over these houses, like a dead man's hands, the roofs are folded. A train, dogs rattle chains. Windowsills snowed over with weary flies. Amelia drinks thick coffee. Yanina shares utensils like playing cards. Yusefa, after loud theatrical farewells, is dead. Yusefa crunches members of broken households. She budgets children and relatives, subtracts the dead, carries over the missing. It is a math problem she buries with herself. All windows in bright white. A step house with step inhabitants, born in this kitchen back three times a day to have a meal in the place of their birth. Yet none is buried anywhere close. Yanina shovels snow piles of flies. Like a manly tear, 
A bird glides across the air. Chains follow dogs as if chains were discharged like slime. Justice has turned out to be more terrifying than injustice. Yanina falls like dust onto her bed. To look healthy, leave that to animals. Once, a tank drives through a street here. Like an elephant, it waves its trunk from right to left. An elephant in our village. Instead of hiding, women run to look. Since then, many birds are shed across the air. The dents on cups gag many thirsty mouths. What has been done to us is muddled with the fears of what could have been done. Our famous skills in tank production have been redirected at students and journalists. But under that roof, folded like a dead man's hands over the house, we still live. But under the truth folded like a dead man's hands over the house, we still live, carrying buckets between a tree and a beast. And instead of evening prayers, I plead with myself to just leave you be, my dear, my undear Lord. Fajina, seriously, it's just wonderful. <laughs> um... I'm so struck by your use of images throughout your collection. I mean, in this poem, you know, roofs like dead man's hands. Then there's Yusefa, you know, who is like accounting for the dead and her family. Like you balance a checkbook, you know, Yusefa crunches members of broken households. She budgets children and relatives, subtracts the dead, carries over the missing. Um, and then there's like these ominous animal images you know there are dogs with chains like slime there's a snow pile of weary flies uh, a tank like an elephant and even the sky is is shedding tears in the shape of birds and i'm very interested in your use of image and metaphor can you talk a little bit about that yeah thank you so much for the beautiful reading of the poem that you offered <laughs> <laughs> images are the most important element of a poem for me and images metaphor and repetition are my main devices um, images are kind of my ideology right i have nothing to prove um, there is no social political agenda there is no historical narrative that i want to tell there's no idea that i'm expressing and that I'm conveying to my readers, whether historical, political, or personal, or cultural, not, not, nothing like that. Uh, my ideology is images. So I think that images stand at different points in one's life. They um, kind of leak new ideas, <laughs> right? Uh, they allow for a lot of productive uncertainty, and for multiplicity of meaning. And um, they invite me to think, to continue thinking year after year. And the poem, as I see it, moves from an image to an image. That's its um, a story, is the movement from an image to an image. 
And uh, metaphor is uh, extremely important because I like to think of metaphor as a device of people who come from poverty, <laughs> who uh, have the desire to multiply <laughs> <laughs> certain things or to utilize a single object for many purposes. And... Um, to open a thing into another thing, uh, uh, therefore increasing, enlarging space. I think metaphor is also the device of um, the instrument through which we transform objects, again, from insignificant to significant, yes, from mundane into magic. So it's a device of transformation, of that kind of instability and fluidity. That's a metaphor. It's it's fluid, like the landscape I come from. So um, landscape in general, the natural images here, the sky, the trees, the animals. I think that uh, when you come from a place that is marked by historical trauma and silence and propaganda, you rely a lot on these inanimate uh, things or nonverbal creatures as um, carriers of certain knowledge and as witnesses um, that are uncorruptible because they do not use human language. Yeah? And so in the political landscape where preservation of knowledge is made so difficult, natural landscape becomes this archive of knowledge, becomes this um, place of witness it's really beautiful that you describe the landscape in a context of a country, you know, with a with a traumatic history. That you describe the landscape as uh, as dependable, as innocent in that sense. You know, it reminds me of I'm blanking on her name, on, for which I feel terrible. But uh, who who is the German speaking Romanian writer? Hertha Müller. Ah, Hertha Müller. There we go. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so, so Hertha Müller, you know, she writes. I feel like she reaches the opposite conclusion from you. You know, like at some point she writes about being suspect or angry with the sun because the sun would shine on Ceausescu's private beaches and give him the satisfaction of a beautiful sunny day, mm -hmm. despite all the horrors that he inflicts on his people. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm just curious about that. Yeah, perhaps I didn't make myself clear, but that's exactly what I was also speaking about, is that the landscape carries all this trauma that is not innocent of it. But because it does not speak a human language, it's uh, more reliable <laughs> in what it remembers. Yeah, but I think it is for me exactly like for Hertha Müller. Everything is marked with violence. Absolutely everything is marked with violence. Every field, every house, every patch of forest. The very idea of a forest patch gives me shivers. <laughs> yeah. so, because of what is buried uh, underneath. Yeah, because of what is buried underneath. Yes, because there is not... There is not one um, place that has not witnessed violence, and language is another place that witnessed all that violence. And I also should say that, of course, that's not something 
specifically Belarusian, but I think that there is not a country that is not built on bones. There is not a language that, um, in the name of which violence was not perpetrated. So how do we think about a tree in uh, American South, for example? How can we not think of lynching immediately? Um, the strange fruit, uh, that's American agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that landscape um, and violence and trauma are connected now in a bond absolutely everywhere. That a landscape is imprinted with violence is something Yulia Tsimafieva has known almost her entire life. When she was four, a nuclear reactor exploded and suddenly her home in a rural part of Belarus became a Chernobyl zone. A few years later, when she was nine, the Soviet Union collapsed. A few years after that, Alexander Lukashenko came to power. By the time she was at university, Yulia would go demonstrating against stolen elections, but nothing ever changed. But then 2020 came around. This time, several opposition candidates had managed to create huge excitement. Even after they were arrested, their wives simply carried the torch. And Lukashenko so criminally underestimates women that he couldn't imagine a little housewife would form much of a threat. For the first time in almost three decades, change seemed possible. But once again, Lukashenko fudged the numbers and put himself in the presidential seat for his sixth term. Hundreds of thousands of peaceful protesters carrying balloons and ribbons took to the streets. But the crackdown started almost immediately. Over the next several months, more than 27,000 people were thrown in prison. Doctors, scientists, professors, workers, students, young people, old people. And they were stuffed in a cell with so many that people had to sleep standing, often for days. Many were severely beaten. Eventually, Yulia and her husband, who's also a writer, fled the country. She's now living and writing in Austria, where she received a residency as a writer in exile. Her collection, Motherfield, which just came out, includes not just poems, but diary entries from the days of the protests. But before we got to those, I wanted to know, besides these exciting opposition candidates, why was 2020 the year that so many Belarusians took to the streets? Here's Yulia. Well, of course, there were several factors. Uh, one of them was that maybe a generation of people was raised that was ready for this protest. Uh, it's interesting then that there were no protests in 2015, uh, just after the elections. Everything was calm. And, you know, uh, at the beginning of the year of 2020, we were ready for the same scenario, that there would no be any protests or something. 
but a new generation of young people who were waiting for the changes, who also have been uh, abroad for many times. Uh, you know, in previous years, Belarus was the champion of the world for the number of Schengen visas for uh, for the percentage of population. Huh. So a, a lot of Belarusians went to Poland, went to Lithuania, went to Germany and to different countries in Europe that they did not only had their holidays there, uh, but also they went for a work and so on and so forth. Uh, so maybe that was one of the factors. Another one was, of course, coronavirus, uh, because at the beginning of the year, Lukashenko was... You know, all this talking about tractors and vodka that are curing uh, coronavirus, or he was humiliating the first people who died of uh, COVID. And people were protesting against that. And they started discussing all the things in the social media. They started raising money uh, for, for Belarusian uh, medical workers for medical appliance, for the uniform, you know, the special ones, for masks and so on and so forth. And this solidarity that worked actually as uh, Belarusian hospitals um, accepted that help, it showed that we can just live on without this crazy president. We can do our business ourselves. And Belarusians believe that they can do uh, something together. So I, I guess many people believe that we could change something. I believed as well. And my husband, uh, writer Alger Bakharevich, and we came to the voting stations together. And of course, we were excited, but uh, it was prohibited for the independent observers and independent exit polls to be held uh, at the voting stations. So people made up a symbol. So you had to have a white ribbon on your hand to show that you are for the changes. And then uh, the independent observers could somehow count the number of people who were for Svetlana Tsikhanovska. The opposition candidate, right? Yes. And that's why when we went to vote, we could see people who were for the changes. And there were a lot of them, the whole families and we exchange and smiles, but there were a lot of prohibitions. Uh, for example, it, it was not allowed to make a photo of your ballot, but that was also one of the ideas to see how many people voted for Tsikhanovskaya, or at least to show that there were much more than the official results uh, stated. And uh, there were no curtains around these boxes, uh, so it was also uh, explained like it was some COVID measures or something like that. So it was a bit uh, tricky. And I felt, of course, nervous when I took a phone and I made a photo, but no one stopped me. So I made my photo. Yeah. And uh, yes, and I voted as I wanted to. But I, I read on Facebook right. uh, that some of my Facebook friends could not do that, for example. I mean, to make a photo of yeah. their ballots. And uh, then uh, at the end of the day, there was the idea to, to, for people to come together to their voting stations and to wait for the results. And uh, when my husband and me uh, came to that voting station, uh, there were a lot of people already and it was dark. It was around nine um, in the evening. 
and we've been waiting and waiting. And then at some moment, both came from the darkness, so from some side street, it appeared. And we were a bit afraid, as we've read on the news, that there were in these buses uh, some uh, special forces could come. And at some voting stations, people were just packed into these uh, buses and just detained for being there by the voting stations. And you can imagine that these voting stations mostly were organized in schools. And the election committee consisted of teachers. Uh, so those who should uh, teach uh, children how to be polite, how to be kind and how to be honest as well. And, for example, the election committee at our uh, voting station did not show any results. They just came out of the school and they took that bus and went away under the protection of police. And we could not see any results at all. Yeah, so that was the day of the election, yeah. Wow. Okay, so I was wondering if we can get to a little excerpt from your diaries. Um, And before you read that, can you tell me, you know, do you always keep a diary? You know, if not, why did you start keeping a diary? And like, what was your decision to want to publish that? Can you tell me a little bit about your protest diaries? Uh, I, I do keep a, a diary about my life, but I was not writing anything about the elections as there were too many things going on and we were on emotional roller coaster and I could not find time to do that. Yeah. But then an editor of Financial Times addressed me and they wanted an essay about the protests, about the demonstrations. And it had to be in a kind of uh, diary form. So I wrote the first text for the Financial Times. And then uh, when I came to Graz, uh, my husband, Alget uh, Bakharevich, a writer, and me, we got uh, a residence here, writers in exile residence. And I went on working on that diary and I made it bigger. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was wondering if we can get to an excerpt. It's the one on page 25. Okay. October the 11th. We have to be on alert all the time. We have already been running today with others on the wet grass and muddy tracks in the old central neighborhood. It felt like a cheap horror movie or a bad dream. Now we're hiding in a big mall, Corona. Under the dazzling lights of the shopping center, I recover my breath and phone my brother to loan the news. While calling, I look at the bright and colorful advertisements with huge half-naked women relaxed and smiling. Their gazes invite us to stay in this gleaming, dry and safe paradise, to smell perfumes, to order pizza, or at least to dry off. But we uninterestedly walk through the mall to the door on the opposite side and find ourselves in front of the immense demonstration marching along. We are walking in the roadway on Pushkin Avenue when I begin to sense something sinister in the air. We've marched enough. You are sick. We've gotten soaked through. Maybe it's time to go home. I suddenly look back and see that the demonstrators are running from the roadway into the courtyards. We run and everybody around us runs. Young and old, women and men, workers and students, doctors and programmers. 
It doesn't matter who you are. The most important thing is how fast you can run from the police across the playgrounds, across the parking lots, between the apartment blocks with their doorways opened by compassionate dwellers who invite strangers inside their flats. Suddenly you stop. You cannot run anymore. We have to hide somewhere and you suggest a grocery store. We enter quickly, take a shopping basket and stop in the bread section as if we were normal customers. It is clear that we are not. We are soaking wet, water dripping from our hair, our faces red from running, our eyes, the wild eyes of animals. We are trying to regulate our breathing over the bread loaves. I dry my face and hair with a paper napkin. Bending over the refrigerator full of dumplings, I try to come down. There are no more police inside, just customers wandering among the food shelves or demonstrators pretend to be customers, who knows. Finally, holding a shopping basket with wine and food for dinner, we go to the cashier. I have my backpack on and we usually try to be ecological, refusing the plastic bag, but not this time. This time, we need an alibi. Through the store windows, we see that people are still marching. The store manager has already closed the door and is shouting at anyone, twitching the handle from the outside. Go away, she cries at them, and we are closed. She lets us out and closes the glass door behind our backs. Heading home, you suggest not to go through the courtyards as there could be a police ambush waiting for the protesters. On Pushkin Avenue, we walk as slowly and calmly as we can, pretending to be a young family. You are holding a white plastic bag full of groceries, and I press close to you. Military vehicles leisurely drive by. At home, we learn that two Belarusian philosophers, a young family like us, have been detained today near Nyamiga Street. Thank you. I think what makes it so arresting is that there are so many little details that are completely from normal life. Like you're in the mall and there are these ads with like, you know, half naked women. And then you're in the store and there's just loaves of bread. And then at the cashier, there's that mention that you usually um, bring your own bags to be uh, ecological, you know, but now you need proof. And I think it's those little details that made it feel so close, you know, like this could happen to any of us in the midst of the lives that we have, you know. Um, and I'm wondering, since you were from the beginning writing for an audience of outsiders, I'm wondering what that did to your writing. You know, maybe the reason why I wrote that book was because I could found that language, how to write about what happened to us in English language. So at that time, and even now, I think I could not write that in my own, uh, in the Belarusian language. The English language gave me this distance uh, from what was going on to me. So it was not like me, it was like someone else. I was like watching a film. I was like writing a script for some horror film or not or some social drama maybe <laughs> let's political drama maybe um but after the book was uh, finished and after 
I decided, so last year I decided that this book should be also in Belarusian language, that I should translate myself. And, you know, it was uh, also quite complicated for me as I had nervous breakdown. So I was crying. I could not reread these texts and to be re-traumatized, remembering all these things and writing about them. Yeah, 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 yeah. And do you feel like that there's something about writing or thinking about this stuff in your mother tongue that makes it harder to handle? Yes, because maybe uh, the Yulia Timafeyeva that writes in Belarusian is closer to to, <laughs> to my real self, maybe, than uh, this uh, Yulia Timafeyeva writing in English language. It's a kind of mask, maybe, or a kind of, I don't know, gloves that protect my hands while writing. I don't know which metaphor to take, but uh, Belarusian, I feel it's blood. Mm. But, you know, I didn't uh, finish the translation of the book into Belarusian language, as uh, there is another problem. Uh, the problem is that uh, this book can be dangerous for me, but also for those people uh, who I write about, as some of them are still in Belarus. And uh, people go to jail for taking part in the protests, and maybe Belarusian authorities do not read so eagerly in uh, German or in English or, or in the Dutch language, but they do read in Belarusian. So I stopped doing that, and I'm not going to publish it. You know, in the recent of course uh, time. Yeah, I, I was wondering if we can get to another poem. It's um, negative linguistic capability. Okay, I have it. At most. Negative linguistic capability. The language I can speak is not my language. The language I wish to speak isn't contained in words I know, isn't contained in images I see. For my language, there are no dictionaries, no agreed-upon rules. It's a language for reading my own self, language for reading with mistakes, because there is no one to correct me. I will never write in this language. If you are reading this poem, you are not my reader. Yeah, thank you. It's so great, like the way that you're simultaneously kind of denying yourself the use of this language as you're using it. Of course, the language we have inside of us is not the language we can speak with, as everyone has its individual language and what we have <laughs> is what we have so i speak english yeah i make mis- a lot of mistakes and of course it's not received as uh, i wish it to, to be made so yeah especially if we speak about foreign language but of course it was meant about you know, your inner language yeah Right, right, right. But I can feel it double, yeah, this double meaning of that poem at the moment. Absolutely. Like you're translating twice in a way, like your inner language to Belarusian and then Belarusian to to English. I mean, it's also like what you said earlier, that there are just certain things that you can't even say in Belarusian because it just hurts too much. And, you know, I think every poet struggles with the, the fundamental inadequacy of language. And so I'm wondering, like, what 
pushes you to keep trying to use language to transcend language? Well, you know, I started writing poetry, I mean, after translating poetry. So I translated several authors, American ones, but not only. So I translated Walt Whitman, Stephen Crane, Sylvia Plath and Saxton, uh, William Carlos Williams. And uh, that was very interesting for me to find uh, the Belarusian equivalent for their works in uh, the Belarusian language, not only the Belarusian language, but, you know, the poetic language in Belarusian, because the tradition of Belarusian free verse is not so uh, long. I wouldn't say so many names that write in a free verse, for example, Vagina Mort herself, huh. Ales Razan, several others. But even now, people, young people, even young poems, do rhyme in Belarusian language. Interesting. And while looking for that language, for the translation, for for inadequate translation, I got interested in that language I found, and I just wanted to go on in that myself without the help of this uh, American classics and go the direction I wanted. Uh, so maybe this interest in language pushes me, interest in Belarusian language pushes me maybe to, to go on. But uh, of course I have, I guess every person has its own story uh, he or she can tell uh, or wants to tell. And I want also to tell my story. And I started telling my story, I mean, my family story, the language story, and I'm moving on. <laughs> and that language that I found and and I go, yeah, mm-hmm. there. Interesting. So it's almost like it, it allows you to keep walking because you have now a new, I don't know, new boots or something. Um, yeah, that can be true. And also when I, uh, when I can't find these words, when I, for example, uh, when the war in Ukraine started by Russia, I could not find any words and I started translating Ukrainian poets into Belarusian language. Mm. So mm-hmm. translation gives me that language that I lack at the moment. So I'm using translation also as a way to express myself in the periods when I do not know what to say, but I know how. I'm wondering if you want to read one last excerpt from your diaries, a tiny little excerpt. It's it's at the bottom of page 20. So all the way at the bottom of the page. I will try to find back. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. 
A friend of mine, the poet and musician Ulaitz, was detained in September during a protest over the arrest of opposition leader Maria Kolesnikova. There is a famous photo taken some minutes before his arrest. Here and other men are being shielded by rows of women, both frightened and fierce, as a militiaman looks on. Together, they sang the mournful folk song Kupalinka. When he's caught hearing three days later, Ulaitz was asked about the purpose of his singing. He answered, because when you sing, you are not afraid. He was sentenced to six days in jail. Thank you. Yeah, across your diaries, you write a lot about how the regime like scrubs society of all, you know, beauty in a sense of all art, you know, like singing is a cause for arrest. And there are like a lot of scenes in the book where people are, you know, for instance, putting flowers down as a tribute, I say, to someone who was uh, killed during the protests. Or there are people drawing murals and the regime just paints them over and then the people paint it again and again it's painted over. And it seemed from what you write that creativity and beauty and joy is seen as suspect. You know, even smiling is is seen as, as suspect. And I'm wondering, like, for a poet like yourself who organizes her whole life around creativity and beauty as kind of an organizing principle. What does it mean to do that work in a society that punishes that work? Well, you know, at the moment, the situation is even worse as the repressions go on. And a lot of uh, creative people and not a lot of poets, writers, artists, uh, actors, uh, singers, and so on and so forth, have to leave the country, have to flee the country mm-hmm. uh, because they can't work as uh, the exhibitions are allowed only for the state-approved artists or members of the pro-state union of artists or pro-state union of writers as well. So. I would say that it's almost impossible for those who create something new to go on working in that field in the country. And that's why they choose either to leave the country, to flee the country, or to keep silent, or to hide somewhere. But I'm not in Belarus at the moment. I'm uh, in a free country. I'm in Austria now. And um, I still go on writing. I still, uh, at least I'm translating now. I'm also writing poems. So we still have our audience and uh, the Belarusian uh, state authorities, they do not have any direct influence on me. So they can't make me silent with their repressions or something. Another thing is that I'm writing uh, now more about political, political things, not like, so I I used to write about the language or being uh, a female uh, author, but now I write about the situation in the country as well. That's what bothers me and hurts me. So I wouldn't say that they can make me silent or other authors silent, but of course we can't go on in our writing as we used to, 
we can't just close our eyes and pretend that nothing uh, happened. So no, all the things, they changed us drastically and changed our works as well. And the way we see things and the way we write about these things as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm interested in it also because I think in America, for instance, there are so many signals that literature doesn't matter, right? Like you can't really earn a living from it unless you're like Stephen King or something. You know, um, it's kind of seen as something that you wouldn't want your child to pursue because, you know, they will be poor forever, you know. And and if you want to make art that moves people, then you maybe would want to go into movies or something, you know. So there's like a kind of devaluing, I think, often of literature by kind of society at large. And I think writers here, it seems like many writers wage this war within themselves also, right? Like have to convince themselves in moments when they don't feel so self-confident, you know, they have to remind themselves over and over again, like, it's worth it, this is valuable, it's a worthy way to spend a life, you know. But it feels like it's hard work, you know, to convince yourself that it matters. And from what I hear you say, and yeah, in the context where writers are punished so heavily for what they say and where even if you write in exile, that your words are so important to those still in that situation and who just feel, yeah, like they have a voice because you write about it. Do you feel like, the, do you also struggle is what I'm trying to ask. Like, do you struggle also with like self-confidence and like, you know, am I a good enough writer? Like, or is it just overtaken by the sense that it matters? Uh, so, you know, it's a very complicated question because... Um, Mm, I don't know where to start from. Of course, I do ask myself whether I'm a good writer or not, a good poet or not, because uh, in Belarus, we we have never had a lot of literary critics. Huh. or We've never had a lot of uh, literary magazines or something. And at the moment, we do not have any. And, um, you know... I do not have uh, reviews from Belarusian critics about my books. And thank God I have my books published abroad at least. And so I can at least uh, read these texts written by the Dutch literary critics or German or, mm. I don't know, English, uh, American, for example. Yeah. So I'm struggling all the time on the one hand. But on the other hand, in 2020 and after that, we realized how literature is important for people. So because it can give hope, uh, it can make readers think, let's put it so simple, yeah? So, and it's also beautiful and people need something beautiful amidst this violence and uh, danger and uh, only bad news coming from uh, the Telegram channels. And... uh, that's strange how people start writing. For example, in Belarusian uh, prisons, uh, political prisoners uh, start reading a lot uh, because they do not have anything to do. And sometimes in some uh, prisons, in some detention centers, libraries are quite rich. You know, I would envy that kind of library. For example, the Valadarka uh, detention center has. Even Michel Foucault is there. And I do not 
I can't get it in Russian translation. <laughs> <laughs> example and, and the, but also poetry also prose also non-fiction and so on and so forth so people start reading more and more but on the one hand but on the other hand they start writing as well they start writing poetry maybe these poems are not of a very good quality maybe they are not breakthrough in belarusian literature but it shows how important it is for people Uh, to write and to read poetry. And now also in, in Ukraine we can see uh, how many people are reading and writing poetry about the war. So maybe, God forbid, but maybe that could also be relevant to the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, but still I do not believe that literature is dead or it's not read or it's not needed. No, it is, but that the moment should come. Julia Tsimafieva is the author of several books of poems in Belarusian, as well as Motherfield, her first book to appear in English. She's also translated from the Norwegian and from English, including poetry by Stephen Crane, for which she won the Carlos Sherman Prize, and Walt Whitman. And she's one of the founders and editors of the online magazine of translated literature, Breitzisfiet, Pass the World. She now lives in Graz, in Austria, as a writer in exile, at the invitation of the Kulturvermittlung Steiermark. Volgina Mort is the author of three poetry collections, Factory of Tears, Collected Body, and, most recently, Music for the Dead and Resurrected, named one of the best poetry books of 2020 by the New York Times and NPR, and a winner of the 2020 International Griffin Poetry Prize. Mort received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the American Academy in Rome, and the Lannan Foundation. She's received the Gulf Coast Prize in Translation and the National Endowment for the Arts Grant in Translation, as she teaches at Cornell University. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikkefus and Erik van der Weste. I'm Helena de Groot. And this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>